From the Palmetto Family Podcast Network, you are listening to South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. Welcome into this edition of South Carolina Connections. My name is Corey Truax. Glad you are here on Palmetto Family Podcast Network. Before we get started with what I have for you today, which, by the way, is exciting and lots of fun, let me point you over to palmettofamily.org. Palmettofamily.org. You can find lots of great content there, including faith conversations with the one and only Eric Corcoran. For real, if this is not part of your weekly listening habit, you are missing out. There's a lot of interesting conversations that Eric is having with the, is having with the leaders in our state about their faith journey. And you can go find that and plenty of other news over at palmettofamily.org, palmettofamily.org. Plus, Josh Putnam, our fearless leader, is hearing from actual legislators and the bills that they are working on. And so if you want to stay up to date with what's happening in your capital, you can find that and a lot more at palmettofamily.org. Now, before we get... uh, Let me give you a preview. That's what we'll do. I first want to flesh something out. I want to I want to build upon something I did on my other show. I have the Corey Truax show that broadcasts on WLFJ in the upstate of South Carolina, where I talked about how it's becoming clearer and clearer to me that as religion has diminished in the United States, one of the consequences of that is people are adopting their political positions with the fervor and the seriousness of that we used to have regarding religion, especially on the left. Not only on the left, but especially on the American political left. And I want to build on that some a little bit on this show. Uh, Plus, I have some thoughts about the debate that took place last week from the Democratic presidential candidates. And then we had a listener write in with a very interesting potential trade. He has has an idea for a legislative bargain. And I... I love those kinds of thought experiments, so I want to explore that as well. We will get started on all that in just a moment. But first, my name is Corey Truax. You might have picked that up already. Amongst many other things, I'm the pastor for teaching at Beechwood Church. Beechwood is in Greenville, South Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 1030. And if you are listening to the sound of my voice right now, you are invited on a Sunday morning at 1030. We would love to have you. I'm also the host of the Corey Truax Show on WLFJ, Christian Talk 92.9 FM, You can also get that show wherever you are listening to this one. So if you are listening to South Carolina Connections on any given podcast app or platform, you can look for The Corey Truax Show. You will find me there and get lots of other good content. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, any of those. Look for Corey Truax. You can reach the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Here we go. It occurred to me that the nature of humankind is actually to worship. It's It's been the nature of humankind, not just in the Western world, but as we look back into Eastern, uh, Eastern cultures and then in some of the ancient Western cultures. It has always been our, uh, we have been given to, it's been our natural predilection to find something larger than ourselves, to define something outside of us as uh, our creator, our progenitor. And that may have manifested itself in places like Egypt by worshiping the sun, or it's manifested itself in a lot of Eastern religions as polytheism, that all of the good things we see in life, we we call it, we, we as humans, the god of this or that. So there was the god of the Nile River, there was the god of the cows, because there was so much good that came from them, and there was the god of the, of the sun, the sky. Or these are 
These are the ways in which mankind has responded to the natural predilection, as I said, inside of us to find something to worship. And then in the American context, a country that was once quite religious, over the last especially 50 years, we've seen a major decline in sincere practice of any given religion. And when that happens, when the actual religious inclinations of the heart are not pointed towards religious symbols and institutions, it's not like those inclinations go away. What's going to happen is you're you're going to fill those inclinations in with something else. And one of the things that has filled the absence of meaning in the American heart has been politics. I think it's one of the reasons that there's so much fervor and rancor around it. Even in my lifetime, I'm 33, I think most of you would agree that the emotional connection of politics has changed in the last 15 years or so. There was always intensity around politics because politics is power. And where people are fighting and jostling over power, there's going to be emotional reaction. But it is different now. And I think it corresponds, and there is an actual causation, not it's not always the case that cause that correlation is causation, but I think there is a relationship here. That as religion has diminished, people are now replacing their religion partly with politics. One of the things that set that off for me here recently is a... This is what has set off this entire segment, by the way. I read this, and it made me go, oh, yeah, this whole thing I thought about religion, I mean, especially the American left, but politics being religion for some people, I'm right about this. So let me give you from the New York Times, the thing that set me off on this track. The New York Times published an opinion editorial this week from a young woman named Kate Cronin-Furman. Kate Cronin-Furman. She wrote, uh, you know, I'm going to read it to you. I am going to read uh, two paragraphs from her op-ed. She's talking about the employees of the Custom and Border Protection down at the American border. So not talking about elected officials, not talking about officials that are particularly in the public eye, but people like you and I, although I'm probably more in the public eye than employees of the Custom and Border Protection. And so she has a point she wants to make about the employees. Again, not the leaders, not the management, not the administration, not Donald Trump or Mike Pence or, uh, or Nancy Pelosi or, uh, or Mitch McConnell. These rank-and-file people who just work jobs and have bills, they pay the mortgage. She had this to say about them, and this, again, connects directly to the way in which politics has become religion for a lot of people. She wrote, quote, The identities of the individual Customs and Border Protection agents who are physically separating children from their families and staffing these detention centers are not undiscoverable. Immigration lawyers have names. Journalists reporting at the border have names, photos, and probably even videos. These agents' actions should be publicized, particularly, particularly in their home communities. This is not an argument for doxing. I'll explain that term in a minute. This is not an argument for doxing. It's about exposure of their participation in atrocities to audiences whose opinion they care about. Now, if you don't know what doxing means, that is an internet term. Uh, That is, uh, it is this. It is trying to embarrass somebody. 
you you find someone's personal information, someone you don't like, and you put it out on Twitter, you put it maybe out on a 4chan type thread, you put it out on a thread to let trolls know how to contact somebody, how to intimidate somebody, how to scare somebody. And so you you go get their personal information and put it out on the internet so that they can be intimidated into no longer doing what you don't want them doing. And her point here is the men and women, the normal men and women who work at the immigration, uh, excuse me, the Customs and Border Protection agents, that they need to be doxxed. Now she says, I'm not arguing for doxing, but of course she is. What she's saying is between lawyers and journalists, we can find out who these people are and we can try to intimidate them. We can try to embarrass them. We can try to get their, their names and their email addresses and their actual addresses out to a bunch of people who can try to intimidate them. What would lead a woman in this direction? This is the type of behavior that you would expect from maybe Catherine the Great and some of the wars regarding Protestants and Catholics. This is the behavior I would expect from King Henry VIII because those were religious wars. When you think your position is so morally righteous, and the opposition doesn't just have a different opinion, the opposition doesn't just think differently, the opposition is evil to their core. Get the word I'm about to give you here. The opposition is in heresy. And in those religious wars, we must kill the heretics. We must destroy the heretics. There's not any other way to get there for this woman. These are men and women with just kids. They've got in-laws and parents they're probably trying to take care of in their old age. These are folks just like you and me. And the, the, her, her reaction is that they don't agree with me on immigration and what we do with people at the border... And therefore, we should ruin their lives. That There's long-lasting implications. This is not just we should see if we can get them fired. It would ruin their lives. When you put people's private information out on the internet with the goal of having people bother them and, and harass them, you, has anyone been on Twitter? We all know that's going to happen. Their, their lives will be interrupted. They're, they will be harassed. And the only way you can justify that is by thinking... My position is so morally just, and those that disagree with me are morally deficient. Moreover, we do need to get to the facts of it as well. She talks about physically separating children and staffing these detention centers. If you're new to me or you're not familiar with me, I, I'm, I am given, it, my, my natural state of being is to agree with those types of arguments. I, I bristle at separating families. I have a natural argument against detaining people without trial. But what we're doing at the border is not an atrocity. We're doing the best we can with the resources that we have with humanitarian crises coming up from El Salvador and Guatemala. When you think through all of the options, I don't know what else we could do. You can't just let them in. You can't just let people come to the border and you just drop them off in Kansas or Nebraska. You can't take them to the middle of the country and drop them off. You have to process them. We have to have the rule of law in place. 
So you can't just let him go. It would be even more inhumane to just put them back on a bus and try to send them back to their, their home country. What we're doing at the border, as, as, as I, again, I am someone very concerned with the morality of our decisions. We're doing the best we can with what we have at the border. But you have this type of thinking on the American left, and it's, it's because it's become so religious to them. They see disagreement, not as honest disagreement among adults, but they see disagreement as heresy that must be defeated in a religious war. I've put, I've put, built this out a little bit more on my other show, but especially in the modern American left, there is, there is language that is directly correlative to religion. So in the, uh, in the Christian religion, we believe in original sin. In the Amer- modern American left, the original sin is called privilege. It's that which makes you tainted. If you had a cultural privilege, racial income, education, if you had privilege, a natural advantage in life, they would say, then you have this thing for which to atone. You are naturally, decri- you're naturally corrupt because of your privilege. And the way you go about making up for it, so in Christianity, we, or we, we would say that Jesus makes up for it, but in other religions, well, you have to do these things, make this trip, say this prayer, do these things so that you can earn atonement. And they would say, well, to do that, you have to renounce your privilege and get woke. That's their word, woke. That is the, uh, the, uh, the experience of conversion, what a Christian might call being born again or what some might call confirmation or baptism. Well, they just call it getting woke. And your atonement, the way you work for your atonement, is to be an activist. And so it's worth at least seeing here. This example of this woman who would be willing to ruin the lives of just normal Americans, what can drive you to that type of intensity and radical activity? Seeing the world through religious eyes can do that, and she does have a false religion, and that is American leftism. It's a thing for us to at least think through, and if you have comments about that, how politics has replaced religion for a lot of people, I would love to hear those comments. Just look for me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'll take those comments there, or Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. You are listening to South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. You can find more about me and everything else that Palmetto Family Council is doing over at palmettofamily.org, palmettofamily.org. You can also sign up for the newsletter there, and I hope you will. Next, the Democrats got together for their first primary debate last week, and I had actually quite a few thoughts about that debate, uh, but we're going to have to narrow it down some. So I, I guess first... Watch, uh, I wrote three things down to cover. Let's cover strategy first. One thing I noticed is that when the economy was spoken of, when there was questions about economic policy, that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, uh, Beto O'Rourke, or Robert O'Rourke, I like to call him because he's not Hispanic, he just he's very pandering when he uses that Beto thing, they continued to try to make the case that the economy was weak. They continued to try to make the case that we have a problem economically. That's going to be hard to do. We're on such a hot streak right now economically, both in 
I should, shouldn't say both because it's going to be several items, not just two, in GDP growth, in the unemployment rate, and in stock market, in the stock market setting records right now, record upon record upon record. There's no one who can claim the economy's not doing well. But you have one of the strategies being undertaken by those candidates to make the argument that well, the economy's not, not really doing that great. If that's going to be the strategy, then the current president of the United States will destroy any of these candidates. The facts on the ground are too clear to people regarding the economy. Things are good. Things are going quite well. And you really can't argue against that fact. The other part that, I guess, phased me on strategy, or I guess confused me on strategy, especially as a disinterested observer. You know, here at Palmetto Family Council, we are for Christian ethics and Christian thinking uh, and for the defense of all religions. We are not an organization that is particularly part of a political party. In, in my personal perspective outside of Palmetto Family Council, as an organization, I'm a fairly disinterested observer in this presidential election in 2020. I, I have like, some opinions and thoughts on it, but I'm not particularly invested in it one way or the other. And so here I am as this disinterested observer and thinking, if your strategy to trying to defeat the current president is on policy grounds, it's not going to go well. Because we can't argue not just with the economic success we're having right now, but even internationally, there's no exogenous threat. I wouldn't call the North Korea summits exactly helpful. I wouldn't say what's going on with Iran is healthy. But we can't say that we have any real existential problem internationally. And so if the goal is to beat this president by making the claims that things are bad, that's not going to work. The candidates that have a strategy that can get to the president, I think, are those that are coming from a cultural or just generally a, stab a stability argument. Making If they come out and make the argument, listen, we recognize things are going okay, we think it can go it can go even better, but consider how much better it would be if your president didn't dominate the headlines constantly. Consider how much better things could be if there wasn't the kind of of uh, kind of chaos it feels like sometimes. I'm not even saying there is chaos. What I'm saying is that there is often a feeling of chaos because of the president's tweets or what he some of the things he says, the language he uses, you know, it you can get to some chaotic feelings. That's the argument. Joe Biden did it correctly when he rolled out his campaign. He started with an argument about morality. He started with Charlottesville, Virginia. And here was these white supremacists that were out there. And Donald Trump said there were good people on both sides. And we're better than that. Like, that's a moral argument that might resonate with enough people to win that election. But you can't get up on stage with Donald Trump and start trying to argue to him that the results are bad because the results aren't bad. So that was a weird strategy. Number two on this. I just can't... I could not believe of 20-something candidates 
there was not a single one that had any kind of reasonable position on immigration. When they were asked, will your health care plan cover illegal immigrants, and every single one raised their hand, like, we're not talking about a reasonable position anymore. You know, the, the President of the United States is somewhat vulnerable on his immigration stance. He's vulnerable because it is viewed by some people as as mean-spirited or it's cold or it's callous. If your if your position on immigration is so extreme that it makes his look reasonable, you're too extreme. And paying for the health care of folks who come here illegally, that is obviously irrational and extreme. It's the kind of policy you think you come up with in middle school or like in elementary school. This is a policy that is literally to the 7 billion people in the world, if you can hear our voice right now, if you can get your feet on this soil, we will pay for all your health care. That's insane. Like Saying you're going to pay for health care for every illegal immigrant is essentially, I'm only... I'm not even actually giving you hyperbole. I'm, I am technically right, knowing practically it would never happen, but technically what they're saying is the 7 billion people on this planet, in theory, you're all eligible for the American taxpayer to pay for your health care. Because in theory, any of the 7 billion or all the 7 billion that can just get their feet on American soil, we're going to pay for their health insurance and health care. That's absurd. That's irrational. Their immigration position on the border, essentially that we don't, we don't want to deport anybody ever. De- deportations are done. And they seem to imply what needs to happen is you shut down all of the uh, detention facilities down on the border. And if you don't, I mean, just do the math, guys. If you're not going to deport anybody and the de- detention facilities don't exist, what is the only actual conclusion? They stay here in America. They're going to stay here. Out of, out of detention. Just walk around. Just be part of the general population. I bring this up partly to say that the, these are irrational positions and they will have found a way to lose the debate even on immigration. But also because one of the things I like to do is look behind the people and the events to look to the ideas of any given any given thing we see. And so there was the personalities on that stage, and there was the event of the debate, but the idea that they bring up regarding immigration is what needs to be examined. I would argue, from the moral perspective, that what they put out there is immoral and it in, is immoral in at least two ways. Not just irrational, so I've covered that. It's not smart policy. It is also immoral in at least two ways. One, in a society that includes a welfare state like ours, that includes all kinds of public benefits, it is incumbent upon a government to do that which is best for its citizens first. So this is a biblical concept that the 
the principalities, they, are, they have been tasked, they've been given authority by God to rule those people and to govern the people that are under their jurisdiction. Not the people outside of their jurisdiction, but under their jurisdiction, and they're supposed to be doing that which is best for the people of their own jurisdiction. It is objectively clear that it is not good for the people of the people of the United States of America, for American citizens, to potentially let in a bunch of people that we have to pick up the tab for. That is objectively not good. So it is immoral that they would lay out the policy that is, we are willing to sacrifice that which is good for the United States citizen to make uh, ourselves feel more compassionate and good about ourselves, I guess. That's objectively an immoral stance. Second, this is the more important one. When you talk like that on national television, that stuff doesn't just stay in the United States. We've seen plenty, I've actually seen it on NPR quite a bit, that a lot of immigration talk that happens on cable news, that's the stuff that gets spread around message boards on the internet in Mexico, in El Salvador, in in Guatemala. And that's where they pick up some of the rumors and some of the ideas. And if a Democrat happens to win in 2020... What they have said about the border is going to cause the following. A bunch of people are going to believe that if they can just get to the United States of America, all their dreams will come true, all of their problems will be solved, so all they need to do is get to the United States. And when you start talking about shutting down detention centers and free health care and really no consequence for crossing the border illegally, you've created a magnet And people will die being drawn to that magnet. The trip from Guatemala, El Salvador, and certain parts of Mexico trying to get into the United States is a treacherous one. Didn't we all see that last week with that horrific photo of a father and two-year-old daughter face down in the Rio Grande? And they made that trek thinking they were going to be able to make it. They were drawn to the idea of opportunity. And when you talk like that in public, that there's going to be no negative consequence and all of your dreams will come true and your health care is going to be paid for, you have created a magnet for people who are often already desperate. It is an immoral thing to do. The logical immigration policy and the moral immigration policy is the one that sets up a just deterrent. It's to discourage people from trying to make that very dangerous trip. To discourage people from coming into a situation where they're probably going to be separated from one another, at least for some amount of time, and then put in detention centers, because we can't do the other thing. It is not compassionate, it is not moral, just to let everyone in. Not in our current economic order. I would argue if we did not have the all the social programs, then it, it would be fine to let people in. I mean, just do a quick background check, make sure there's no violent history, criminal history, something like that. But beyond like if if it were not for the economic consequence, sure, let people in. The problem is that we do have that welfare state. And so if you let people in, you are going to overrun our system and hurt a whole bunch of people. And it's, it's not a moral thing to do. One final point here on the debate. Just economically, the radical policy that, that was put forth in terms of 
tax rates and Bernie Sanders finally admitting that you have to uh, raise taxes on the middle class if you want to pay for all of the programs he wants to put out there. That was good that we finally got some clarity from Bernie Sanders and that truth that, yeah, you're going to have to pay a lot more in taxes. But it should, al- should also be clear to the American people. What has worked for growth has been lower taxes and deregulation. Now, we need to match that with, with cutting our spending. And so when you have a, a good economic situation with lower taxes and less regulation, it should be really clear to the American people, you know how you reverse that? Tax more and add more regulation. And that's what everyone on that stage was talking about. I'm almost out of time here, so I want to get to this. Adam wrote into the show, and you can do the same thing, Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Adam wrote in with essentially this fun thought experiment. If given the opportunity, were these two sacred cows of American politics, would we trade these two? That uh, with folks like me who want to see abortion, the, the, uh, the, unbo- the murder of the unborn ended, would we trade that for something that the left really, really wants? So the way he laid it out was really clever, that folks on the right see abortion as the, the, the unneeded killing of people, And then folks on the left see gun ownership as the unneeded killing of people. And so would the two sides trade those? Would the right say, all right, I'll give give it up. I'll give up the guns. I'll give up the Second Amendment for an outright abortion ban. And would the folks on the left say, we'll give it up. We'll give up abortion. We're going to ban it if we can repeal the Second Amendment and have a gun ban. It's a super fun thought experiment. And I would love your thoughts. I'd love your opinion on uh, what you think would happen there. I would say morally, um, I mean, I, I think I would do it. I would make the trade because we are dealing with the, the murder of the unborn. Uh, now, gr- ownership of guns and use of guns for self-defense is not an immoral thing. Uh, so it should not have to be that kind of trade. We shouldn't have to. We should be able to have our self-defense and be able to uh, protect the unborn. But it is a very interesting thought experiment. I would love to get your thoughts at Show at gmail.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me there and tell me what you think about that very clever trade from Adam. You can also find The Corey Truax Show wherever you're listening to this one. We'll be back with another new edition of this show next week. Until then, peace and love.